The first reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 4. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending you my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now we're going to turn to Luke chapter 4 and read verses 14 to 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding countryside. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The third reading today is from Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll read verses 1 to 11. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out! And I said, What shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep. I'm sure some of us have 
a particular song going through our minds, having just heard that reading. I'm thinking, of course, of O Thou That Tellest from The Messiah. And it's one of the, one of the strong memories of my childhood, actually. Uh, my grandmother uh, was a very good piano player, and my mum is a, a very good singer. And they used to do it every year. The minister, uh, back in what was then, I would guess, the early to mid-80s at the church, really loved that song and always got my mum to sing it and my grandma would play the piano. And I can remember doing homework for evening after evening whilst the two of them rehearsed this thing. So it's, it's firmly in my mind. Uh, I don't know what on earth happens to the singing voice at this generation. It just completely vanished. Anyway, there we go. Um, to the sermon. In the middle decades of the 17th century, nearly 400 years ago now, it must have seemed as if English society was being turned upside down. And this famous picture from the mid-1640s depicts something of the turbulence of this period. Uh, When you look at it, you, you eventually see a cat chasing a dog and a rabbit chasing a fox and a cart before a horse, and an upside-down church, and fish swimming in the sky, and a candle burning the wrong way up, and a wheelbarrow pushing a man, and a gentleman in the middle who clearly got dressed in the dark that morning. And it it captures something of what was going on, as, as satirical political cartoons often do. So what was it that was causing such upset? Well, to start with, there were the political ramifications of the civil wars, with Cromwell and his armies trying and, of course, eventually succeeding in their attempts to overthrow the monarchy and reform the entire mechanisms of government. But the political and constitutional crisis was just one half of the story, because the execution of the king when it came was a theological crisis as well. At this point in the mid-17th century, uh, English society was only 100 years or so on from Henry VIII's infamous break with Rome and the setting up of a national church of England with himself and his heirs as its head in place of the Pope in Rome. So when we get to the 17th century, the regicide of King Charles at the hands of Cromwell and his armies was an event that struck a blow at the roots of all of the dominant structures of English society. And I'm using the word English deliberately here. It was, it's a different story in other parts of the United Kingdom. So suddenly the national church in England was itself under threat. And this created a context in which theological rebellion could flourish. So you get breakaway groups forming, such as the Quakers and the Baptists, people who refused to pay their tithes or to baptise their babies. And then you get other, even more radical groups, such as the Levellers and the Diggers, arguing on religious grounds that the wealth of the country should be redistributed for the benefit of the poor. And I want us to pause for a moment here because I find the levellers particularly interesting, not least because of their links to the early pioneers of our own Baptist tradition. Unlike the more anarchist diggers, the levellers were not arguing for some proto-communist ideology where the rich are thrown down and the poor are raised up. 
Rather, the levelers took a more nuanced and creation-centred approach. They argued that the land itself was a gift from God, given for the benefit of all who live on it. And so their issue was not fundamentally that some were wealthy and some poor. Rather, it was that the land, the fields and forests of England, belonged to neither the rich nor the poor. The land of England, according to the levellers, was God's territory. And the humans who lived on it, whether royalty or peasant, did so only as God's tenants. So, the levellers took issue with the enclosure of common land, and they argued for the right of each person to be able to make a living from the soil. The levellers also argued for greater democracy, believing that all humans are worthy of a say in the running of society. They argued for greater religious tolerance and freedom. Well, they would, wouldn't they? And they argued for the equality of all before the law. Again, a bit of vested self-interest there. Don't throw us into prison uh, without a trial, please. The movement flourished for just a few years in the mid to late 1640s. But for a time, they were hugely popular, reaching many people through their extensive pamphleteering. You know, you think you've had Labour and Lib Dem and Conservative pamphlets through your door. There's nothing new under the sun. They were doing this 400 years ago. They were also, as you can probably imagine, hugely controversial with the powers that be. So although many in Cromwell's army were sympathetic to the levellers, he himself was rather more sceptical. And there's a memorial at Burford in the Cotswolds to three levellers shot on Cromwell's command. Uh, they weren't a political party in the modern sense of the term. You couldn't vote for them in an election, not least because uh, you probably wouldn't have had a vote in any elections in those days anyway. But nonetheless, they were a populist political and social movement seeking to change the face of society in the direction of justice. But here's the thing. As we gather on the Sunday before an election... On many of the issues that the levellers took a stand on, I find myself in considerable sympathy. I do believe each person has the right to make a living, the right to vote, the right to believe as they choose, the right to be judged impartially by the law. I'm in favour of religious tolerance and of the innate value of each human being before God. Back in the 17th century, the levellers of London, many of them members of a Baptist church just a little way east of here over in the city, they mounted a campaign with petitions and actions to present to their civic leaders in the hope that their cause would be heard and that changes could be brought about to benefit the poor and curb the excesses of the rich. And they hoped this could happen without the need for wholesale revolution. In the end, of course, the levellers, as we know, didn't succeed, and revolution did come, and the armies were mobilised, and a king lost his head, and a nation fought for its identity. But I like to think their spirit still lives on. In many ways, the challenge of those turbulent years from four centuries ago still rings down to us today. I'm not sure that those early Baptist levellers were all that different to us. As we put pressure on the political powers of our time, 
to make the city a more just place for all to live, joining with other churches and mosques and synagogues and educational establishments through the work of London citizens. So don't forget to put Tuesday, the 21st of April, in your diary now for next year. Come and join with others from Bloomsbury and other churches, mosques, synagogues, institutions across London at the Copper Box at the Olympic Park to engage the 2020 mayoral candidates on issues of youth violence and homelessness and climate change and fair employment and the like. Come and be a modern-day leveller with us. And I think the fundamental issues that inspired the levellers to organise their members for a better society are still the issues that inspire people to do the same today. And the cost of failure still remains just as high. If these things are not addressed, then even more people will die on the streets of our city. It matters deeply to us, just as it did 400 years ago to the levellers, that society is just, fair, equal and impartial. And here's the thing, another lesson we can learn from the activism of the levellers. It is the responsibility of each person to make every effort to bring a better society into being. And we do this as Christians, not just out of self-interest, although this should not be underestimated, but rather as Christians, we work for a better society because we believe it is in the interest of God for us to do so. The passage we had earlier from the book of Isaiah speaks of every valley being lifted up, every mountain and hill being laid low. It speaks of uneven ground becoming level and of rough places becoming a plain. Isaiah, writing some, what, 2,600 years ago? offers us a vision of the levelling of society, of the evening out of those areas where people are laid too low or raised too high. He offers us a vision of the removal of the obstacles to inclusion and participation that cause people to trip and stumble. It is a vision of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And it tells us that this process is the mechanism by which the glory of God is made known amongst people. How is God going to be made known in our world? God is made known when the people of God act to see justice come. Well, this morning's passage from Isaiah was written towards the end of the exile in Babylon. If you were here last week, you may remember that we were hearing from the prophet Jeremiah, who predicted the start of the exile and the downfall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian army, and yet offered words of hope to people living in the midst of despair. Well, chapter 40 of Isaiah comes from a few decades later, when Jerusalem has indeed been destroyed and the people have been carried off into exile, but the message of hope is still there. And Isaiah prophesies a return to Jerusalem, he offers the exiles words of comfort. He says that the punishment for the people's sin, foretold by Jeremiah and enacted in the exile, it's nearly at an end. And the restoration of Israel is at hand. And I think we need to pause just for a moment again here 
and consider the theological implications of this idea of the exile being a punishment on Israel for unfaithfulness. The assertion that a people group, in this case Judah, bear the consequences of their leaders' sinful actions can seem a deeply troubling concept. After all, why would God punish the ordinary people by sending them into exile just because their king took some decisions that were displeasing to God? Except, of course, this is exactly what happens all the time, everywhere. The people always pay the price for the bad decisions of their leaders. It's the way the world is. And I wonder if the way to look at this is to recognize that terrible leadership can lead to terrible suffering, and that this is true whether we were living in ancient Israel, or Babylon in exile, or 21st century London. I mean, it's not as if God hadn't warned Israel. If you rewind to the first book of Samuel, when the people were crying out for a king in place of the judges to rule them, Samuel the prophet told them in no uncertain terms of the price they would eventually have to pay for having a king like the other nations. But no, they said, they still wanted a king to lead them and fight their battles for them. Well, in our days of more enlightened democracy, we might say that the people get the leaders they vote for. But even here, that's not always true. Many a prime minister has been elected to office with far less than a majority of the population having voted for them. And it is so often the disenfranchised and the impoverished and the vulnerable who pay the price for the bad decisions taken by even the most democratically of elected leaders. It's a fair certainty that by this time next week, some of us are going to be disappointed with the election result. Whichever way it goes. And in the midst of this, perhaps we will need to hear again the wisdom of Isaiah, who proclaimed that nothing that is unjust lasts forever. Even the punishment of Babylonian exile came to an end eventually for the people of Israel. Isaiah proclaimed that those who are lost will come home again, and that those who mourn will be comforted. Injustice does not get to win forever because God's kingdom of justice and righteousness is forever breaking into the world with each succeeding generation through the faithful witness of the people of God to the faithfulness of God. Martin Luther King famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it's bends towards justice. And the comfort proclaimed by Isaiah to the exiles in Babylon was no shallow, Pollyanna-ish message of hope. Rather, it was a comfort based on the faithfulness of God. Because even if God's people are unfaithful to God, God remains faithful to them. And so Isaiah calls for a way to be made straight in the desert, for God to come to his people once again. The path in the desert is not for us, God's people, to get to God. It is for God to get to God's people. Isaiah called for the mountains to be laid low, for the valleys to be lifted up, 
the obstacles that stand between God and people will not last forever. God will come again to the world, said Isaiah, to bring good news of renewed and restored relationship. And there is a personal challenge here for each of us to consider what the barriers are in our lives that stand in the way of God coming to us. What needs levelling in your life, in my life, to allow Christ to come to us? The capacity for sin to quietly build up until it obscures God from our view is something that each of us needs to guard against. But there's good news in Isaiah too for those of us who feel far from God, which is that we are like sheep cared for by a good shepherd. Isaiah portrays God as always at work, seeking those who are lost and carrying us gently and safely home, lifting us up when we feel too weak to take another step in our own energy. I think that there is an eternal truth here, which is that we are never abandoned because God is the good shepherd. And it is God who satisfies our deep hunger to be deeply known and deeply loved. And so we come to the proclamation of John the Baptist in the wilderness, another prophet, a bit like Isaiah, a bit like Jeremiah. And John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was coming to bring forgiveness for sins and to open the path for God to come to us. And that message of forgiveness and reconciliation is as much for us gathered here today as it ever was for those in the Judean wilderness waiting for their Messiah to come 2,000 years ago. Just as Isaiah's message of comfort is as much for us as it was for those in exile in Babylon some 600 years before that. God comes to us with good news, with forgiveness, with justice, with comfort and with reconciliation. He comes to turn our world upside down again. And so we gather in Advent to prepare ourselves for the revelation of God in Jesus. And we do well to hear the challenge once again that God is discovered in our lives and in our society when injustices are undone. In Christ, God comes to us, yes, as the infant in the manger, but also again and again, God keeps coming to God's people and to God's world by the spirit of Christ at work in our midst and in our lives. According to Luke's gospel at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah. We heard the reading earlier. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blinds, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This call to become involved in the levelling of society 
runs like a thread through both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. I could have pointed us to the Sermon on the Mount, or to the Magnificat on the lips of Mary, or to countless other places that speak of justice and reconciliation as an integral part of the message of Jesus. And this challenges each of us to take the faith that we have in God who comes to us in Jesus and to turn that faith outwards to the world, to have faith in a new world that is coming, that comes into being as we live and pray it into existence. The vision here, you see, is of a world where wrongs are righted, a world where the poor receive good news, a world where those who are captive to forces beyond their control find release, a world where those who are blinded to the humanity of the other are able to see clearly for the first time in their lives, a world where those oppressed by ideologies of hatred are finally released to love someone other than themselves. A world where those who are despised by all find themselves the object of God's favour. This is the levelling we long for. This is the levelling that brings life and does not take it. This is the levelling of the kingdom of God which is coming, for which we pray and for which we long. And it is before us, as it is before every generation. And it begs of us a response. If God comes to us in Christ, what earthly difference does this make to the way we live today, tomorrow, next week? And that's the question I want to encourage you to take away and ponder as we prepare ourselves through Advent for the coming of Christ. And we look for the one who is coming to us. And as we pray for the coming kingdom, that it may come on earth as it is in heaven. So let's bring our prayers for ourselves and for the world. God of love, give us now a sense of your presence as we bring our prayers and requests to you and enable us to open our hearts and minds to you. For a few moments, we seek to put aside our busy rushing and to sense that awe and wonder which comes from an awareness that we are in your presence. For us, you humbled yourself and lived a human life. And we know that you understand our worries and our fears. So we pray trusting in your willingness to share our concerns for ourselves and others. Forgive us when we live our lives without trusting in your promise that you will come again to your world and to your people. Help us to be watchful and prayerful and in expectation of your unveiling, to model our lives on your example. Help us to hear afresh the challenge of John the Baptist to make our lives ready for your coming. 
May we be filled with an expectancy which causes us to make ourselves ready this Christmas for you to come to us and make your home with us. We seek afresh to straighten our crooked paths and to shape our lives as holy places fit for you. Holy God, who comes to the world in love, we know that our world is facing enormous problems, which seem of such magnitude that we cannot easily imagine how we can live at peace. Global terrorism, economic crisis, environmental challenge, and poverty and suffering which we seem powerless to bring to an end. All these are at the forefront of our minds, and especially we pray for all those affected by recent terror attacks and those who have been killed and injured in the fire in Delhi overnight. We pray for those who have no daily bread, and we are humbled when we seek to possess more while so many have so little. When we're faced with world problems which are of such enormity, help us to never give up hope, but to place our trust in you for the future, that you are always bringing justice to bear. We remember that in Jesus you lived an ordinary life in Nazareth with human parents, brothers and sisters. You understand the difficulties faced in families. So we pray for all those involved in providing support for troubled families, for those who strengthen our community life. And especially this week, we pray for social workers, for those struggling with poor resources to provide social welfare. Help us to care more for each other so that the vulnerable amongst us are supported and protected. And as we draw closer to Christmas, we think of those who are concerned about money worries, those who have no stable housing or who fear losing homes through lack of finance. In whatever difficulties we face, may our eyes be drawn to your presence amongst us, and may we seek your strength to provide the answer to our needs. John the Baptist called people to change their lives, to make themselves ready for the coming of your son. So raise up, we pray, prophetic voices in our time. Enable our souls to discern the authentic voices which call for change and draw us closer to you. Give us courage to reject those voices which pander to our selfish desires and speak words devoid of your challenge to real commitment. We pray for all those who this day teach and preach and minister to congregations to bring your gospel truth to life in human hearts. And we pray for all those who lead on a national stage, for our politicians and civil servants. And especially we pray for the coming election, asking that our elected leaders will remember those whom they are called to serve. May justice be done 
May the poor find sustenance and may lives be restored. Enable our leaders to recognize the validation of their leadership, not in the realization of human ambition, but in spiritual peace that comes ultimately from you. We often pray that your kingdom would come, and so we ask that your reign in our lives would flourish and grow. Strengthen us, especially at this busy time, that we might make time for preparation. In the midst of the rush of life, help us to find inner quietness and an awareness of your presence. Let this Christmas be a time when we concern ourselves not so much with material presence, but rather with spiritual blessings. May your blessing be upon all those who are in pain or sickness, on those who are anxious or troubled, on those who are bereaved and living with grief. You are always coming to us, even when sometimes you seem far away. And we pray that when we pass through dark places, we will know you close by our side. In our pains and sorrows, in desolate times, and when we feel perplexed and forsaken, help us to know that you come to us in deep love. We offer all these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.